1: Genesis chapter 1 from verse 27 to 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw that all he had made, God saw all that he had made, and it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2, from verse 1 to 8. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the lord god made the heavens and the, when the lord god made the earth and the heavens now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the lord god had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground but the streams came up from the earth And water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Um, So today we're beginning a new series, and it's very much related to who we are as a church. Francis had already mentioned about being an urban church, but a gospel-centered urban church. Now, one of the things that was on the screen when Francis was speaking was the vision of our church, and that is to be... um, to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews the city of Lagos, right? To catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews the city of Lagos. What we want is to renew the city of Lagos. But we want to do that through a gospel-centered movement. Now, when we talk about renewing the city of Lagos, we don't necessarily mean bridges and roads, though that would be implied. But essentially, we're saying, what are the unique things that, as an urban dweller, that are so unique and so important to us? And how does the gospel then affect those things? Now, we've looked at marriage in our previous series. This time, we're going to have a two-part series, which is basically looking at work. I think after our marriages, work becomes probably, is probably the most important thing to most of us who are here. Now, in a time like recession that we're in, um, continuous recession, you know, even the fact that some of us will be nervous about losing our jobs or the fact that if you're an entrepreneur and a business owner, you're not getting and I've spoken to quite a few of us, we're not getting you know last year you thought things were not too good, but this year is actually really, really difficult. So work is so important to us for most of us that source of livelihood. um another thing that we deal with in terms of our work is I saw someone this morning and I just asked her I said, "You look very tired, and she was talking about how she traveled, she was away, um, she was in Ibadan uh, or, or yesterday and now just, you know, getting here this morning. So we deal with burnout. For many of us, actually, work is an expression of our identity. And the one that is a little bit humorous, but that's sadly true, is that for some of us, a particular, not just having a job, but for a, for a particular kind of job is a prerequisite for marriage. You know, you can't marry somebody who has this kind of job, it has to be someone that has this kind of job. So all of a sudden, your work is interrelated. And lastly, it's very, very important because most of our week, and therefore our months, and therefore our years, are spent at work. Especially when you consider both paid labor and unpaid labor. Now, so all these things I've said is a lot of how we look through and we think about work. But something I do think, deep down in us, tells us that there is more. There is more to work. But because we are so busy and so encapsulated in it, we move with the tide that you know every the the, the tyranny of the urgent. Because of that, we never really think deeply about our work. No matter what job that it is that we are actually doing, we never have the time to really think deeply about our work. And yet something tells us that there is more. Now, so purpose and design and definition is everything. Knowing what the goal is of work is will be very, very important. Now, there are different ideologies, as I said. We are probably all bust into one. We didn't really sign up for it, but we just find ourselves in this particular ideology, work is for me to eat, or work is for me to be seen as this kind of person. And we just go, oh, I just have to do it. Monday to Saturday, I just have to do it. And you never think deeply. Now, I want us to think a bit deeply about what the Christian view of work is. Right? We'll look at it, we could have looked at it actually for a whole month, but we're only going to look in two-part series on this. And so we want to be able to see, if we see that, I think, if we understand, get the purpose, we'll be better able to deal with the hardships that we face. But at the same time, also flourish, I think, in a very, very difficult economy that we have. So we're looking at the meaning of work today, and I'll put that in three points, all right? So we're looking at work, its setting, its meaning, and its redemption, its setting, its meaning, and its redemption. Now, don't forget that meaningful statements, let me take the first part, meaningful statements emerge from a story. That is, if you want to understand what someone says, right, you have to think of the backstory, the background, and where you are going with that story. And so it's the same thing with the Bible's view of work. It actually is put in a story. Now, where Teddy read for us, we started from Genesis 1, 27, 28. But before that, and just um, maybe we take from Genesis 1 verse 1 to Genesis 2 verse 3, we have an account of how the world was created according to the Judeo-Christian worldview. Now, in that account, what we see is an intentional creation by a God who is intentional. He was intentional in creating this. Now, during that time, when this was written, there were other creation myths that circulated around in the different nations and the different religions. Some of the most popular ones would be, would be essentially were saying that um, the world was created by accident. So some would say that there was a war between the gods, and by the time the, uh, the war was finished, the one that actually um, lost was killed, and then somehow his blood brought about the world. So in that, in that view, the world is an accident. Another view that we have actually today is the evolutionist view, which basically says because we don't know how the world came in, it was really through a random process, then the creation of how all these things emerge, again, it's evolution, but through natural random processes, at the end of the day, it's hard to get meaning from all the things that we do. But the Bible is actually different. It gives an intentional creation. Let me explain what I mean by that. In Genesis 1-2, we see three problems. We have a problem, but we can see it in three parts. We know that the earth, let me read it, Genesis 1-2. Now the earth was formless, empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So it was formless and empty. It was dark. Darkness was there. It was formless and empty. And there was an abyss of water. So if we have those three problems, darkness, abyss of water, formlessness, and emptiness, what does God do? In this intentional creation, we see that God actually makes things to move from chaos to order. He makes things to move from chaos to order. And that's how the three the six days are actually divided before we get to the seven day resting. So if you think about it, for him to solve the problems, he takes he does preparation and population. Preparation and population. Day one to three is preparation, day four to six is population. Now, whatever he prepares on day one, he fills in day four. What he prepares on day two, he fills in day five, three to six. So, for instance, in day one, to solve the issue of darkness, he creates light and separates it from darkness. By the time you get to day four, he actually creates the skylight. He puts the the, the moon, the sun, and the stars. Day two, the problem of the abyss of water. He creates a sky vault and separates the water. So, you have the sea now and the waters that are above in the clouds. What does he do on day five? He actually puts in sky creatures, the birds and all those things, and the sea creatures as well, the fish and all of that. And then what does he do on day three? The dry land emerges plants. He's dealing with the issue of formlessness and emptiness. So the dry land comes, and therefore the world takes form. And then in day six, animals and human beings are created, and they fill the world. Now in this thing, in, verse two, in chapter 2, verse 3, that we read, you will see this intentional creation that God actually was carrying out, it is called work. Look at it. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he, in, on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. One of the things that we see in how God created the world is how he showed two aspects of himself. One is the fact that he was creating. The other one was that he was ruling. He was bringing order. So we see a God that is a creator and a God that is a ruler. Remember, he makes things, creator, to bring order out of chaos. Ruler. That's chapter 1, 1 to 2, verse 3. And when you read the creation account, sometimes you may be a bit confused what then happens in chapter 2. If we look at it this way, chapter 1 is almost a panoramic view, a huge view. Chapter 2 then zooms in, 2 to actually the end of 3, zooms in on God's own special creation, which is man. Let's move on with the story. Now, God created man, we see in verse uh, 27 and 28. And notice what he does. He tells the man that he should be fruitful and he should multiply. He should fill the earth. Now, many people have called this a cultural mandate. Why is it called a cultural mandate? First of all, God starts to tell the man to do certain things that God himself has done, right? Remember what God did. He prepared and then he populated. Now, he's telling the man to actually populate the earth, be fruitful and multiply But at the same time, he says he should subdue the earth. Now, before I go into all of that, what does that mean? If you look at verse 31, it says that everything God created was very good, isn't it? But yet, it seems like there were still some things that were not done. Why? Because when God created the world, he made it very good, but it was still incomplete. I'll say that again. When God created the world, it was perfect in what it was intended for, and what it was intended for was not for it to be a finished product. So the world was very good, but actually the world was incomplete. Now God tasks the man and says, all right, go, create culture. And by creating culture, I have given you something like raw materials. Now bring it to its completion or fulfill what it's meant to be. This is how you can translate the Hebrew word that is subdued, is that it is there to fulfill potential of something that actually has not come to its complete form. So man was meant to multiply, fill, and subdue, populate the earth. Now in that regard, think about it. He's populating the earth. In other words, man himself starts to create, or whether we should call it, he procreates. But at the same time, as he procreates, God says, I've given you this world. Now the raw materials are this world. I want you to subdue. I want you to fulfill it. Let it come to its potential. And in that vein, man is actually reflecting God. He's procreating, but he's also ruling. He's having dominion. He says, be, fruit, um, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish. And see, that is, exercise the dominion. In that regard, somehow man reflects God in what God is doing. You know, the raw materials is the same thing as taking the raw materials and fulfilling it to his final end. It's basically what somebody does with music. God gives us space, and the manipulation of space brings sound, and when the sound is then arranged in a particular kind of order, it creates something pleasant to the ear, music. Or someone that actually takes crops and food that has been on earth, and then he brings about a cuisine, or an entrepreneur that takes capital and brings about a a, a whole new organization serving us with many products. We subdue the earth. And in doing this, we are reflecting God because if God in this narrative is both creator and ruler, we've now become procreators and vice-rulers or vice-regents. When you think of this narrative, one of the things that actually comes to me is how the fittedness of man and this world. It's almost like God created mankind with the world in mind, and he created the world with mankind in mind. As we think about how we reflect God in this creation and rulership, verse 27 of chapter 1 then makes a lot of sense. God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female created them. In other words, mankind uniquely reflects God in a way other creatures don't. And one of the ways we do that is by working. That's why after he said God works three times in verses 2 and verse 3 of chapter 2, in verse Uh, 5, it says that there was no one to um, uh, no one to till or to work the ground in verse 5 and in verse 15 it said the Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work. What does this all say? At least at this first uh, uh, point. is that your work, whatever you are called to do, whether you are actually paid or unpaid, work itself is inherently and objectively good. Because through work, we actually express that value that human beings have above every other thing. Human beings have value because we are created in the image of God. And one of the ways we express this image bearing is that we have a God that works, and so we also work. So work itself is good. Now, I know that isn't always the view that we have. Some people see work just for, okay, it gives me reputation, it feeds me. But at the end of the day, work is punishment, and that's why we have weekends, right? Yeah? They say by Thursday, around 2.30, everybody starts thinking. By Thursday, and for some of you who are employers, don't take this advice for free. Thursday, 2.36 p.m., by that time, all your employees are already thinking about the weekend. They actually cannot do anything again. So when you think about Friday and people are actually so slow, you got that from me. But that's the way we see it. Work is punishment. Some will even say, if you are, if you are very, very, if you know your Bible a little bit, will say, well, work was a punishment for the fall. The fall that is when man rebelled against God, which we see in chapter three. But obviously, we have just read Genesis one and two, and we see work already present before the fall. Now, does the fall corrupt work and bring about some unique challenges? Yes, but that does not remove the inherent goodness of God because the fall itself did not remove the infinite value that we as human beings have as created in God's image. So work is good. Can we say that together? I think a bit louder. All right. I'm happy it was Shegna that said that, right? <laughs> but then, what kind of picture, what kind of distinct worldview does this actually do- emerge from this whole story that we've painted? What kind of worldview comes so that I can think about my work differently? Well, I'm glad you asked. Point two. Its meaning. Now, let me first state the uh, state what I want to say there, and then we can develop it as we think. Now, the worldview that emerges can be stated in this way. The work is God's dignity bestowing call to serve as royal priests. I'll say that again. Work, according to the Bible, the Christian view, is God's dignity bestowing call to serve as royal priests. Now think of three words there. Call, service, and dignity. Call is in relation to God. Service is in relation to humanity. And then dignity is in relation to the worker. All right? Calling in relation to God, service in relation to humanity, and dignity in relation to the caller. Let's take calling. To be a worker and to work, according to the Christian worldview, is not first and foremost to feed you. Or it's not some kind of self-expression. It's actually a relationship between you. It expresses a relationship between you and God, every single human being. Work is a calling. Now, if you notice in verses 5 and 7 of chapter 2, think about this. God has created everything, but it's it's incomplete. So God has unfinished business. Now, it says, No shrub had yet appeared on the earth. No plant had sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. You see, there was something not actually completed. But the streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God, formed a man from the dust. So you see, there's a problem here. And God says, well, for me to deal with this problem, I am now going to create man. So God actually creates this man in verse 7. He then plants a garden in the east. And what does he do in verse 15? He took the man and put him there. In other words, it is God's work that you're doing. It's God that calls you to serve in the place of work that you are. It's not... Again, I say it, first and foremost, something to delight in for yourself, even though it's that, it is that you are responding to God. How many of us think when we go to work and we're going to work tomorrow morning, I am responding to the call of God? Not just responding to this, my boss, but I'm actually going to respond to the call of God. Now... One of the, work, one of the um, questions that often emerges, and I won't spend too much time with this because we can actually hold a whole seminar. Of this is, already right, if it's a call, I won't lie to you, I hate the job I'm doing. I just terribly hate it. Or, as some people would say, I wish I could find out the purpose of God for my life in relation to my work. What they're essentially saying is, how do I know what God has called me to? Again, I'm glad you asked. There are three ways you can think about this. Alright? Three things, or three questions you want to ask. What do you like? What are you good at? And what's available? What do you like? What are you good at? And what's available? Or you can think about them this way. Affinity, ability, and opportunity. Now, contrast this with what is prevalent in our culture. How much does it pay? Or, Ah. There's a, child, there's a guy that is in his third year, fourth year. Ah, I heard that uh, telecoms is the thing now, so everybody is now applying to go. Or, you are going to medical school. But, mommy, I like music. You are going to medical school. What kind of music? Or, uh, Femi, come and speak to your, your, your cousin. Oh, he said he wants to be a rapper. A rapper. In other words, this is the way we think about it. Why? Because it's not, first of all, maybe the job is not something that is seen in our society as having any kind of value, and worse off, it actually doesn't pay. Hardly do we ask the question what is this person good at? How many people do you know that want to go into business that have not a shred of talent in running a business? I know quite a few of them. Actually, God has called them to be public servants, but they say, you know what? In fact, I hear this quite often. The Christian view of work is that God doesn't want you to work for anybody forever. At the end of the day, God wants every Christian to own their own businesses. If God wants every Christian to own their own businesses, I think the logical conclusion will be that we'll all be one-man businesses. Right? Oh, okay. Well, that's another, that's another dimension. We'll have dominion over the unbelievers, right? Oh, may God deliver us. No, but what is it you like? And how do I know what you like? What do you daydream about? What is that problem that a lot of people cannot see? You get excited. You start talking about it. Two, three minutes, four minutes, you start noticing that other people. They want to start. "Eh, Yeah, yeah, itunu is talking to Femi about one thing that you're very, very excited about. After three minutes, Femi will say, ah, yummy, yummy. Uh I'll see you later. Why? You are killing people with this idea. Now, don't bore people too much with your idea. Follow the idea. That's one way. What do you like? The other thing is you may like something, but you're not very good at it, right? You may think that, man. I would look. Uh, this is, this one is even the worst thing. When we, you know, get into our armchair political discussions and we are criticizing the president from, and then you actually think. See, some people say, if I was president, uh, no. Thank God you are not president, because you couldn't even settle the squabble. Uh, between your children, you want to settle the squabble between 160 million people, really. What are you good at? Now, what you are good at is not just for you to say, which sometimes we are self-delusional about, I know I'm good at something. Let other people tell you that you are good at it. Yeah, far too many people, I take, take for instance, my job, far too many people, they got up one day. They talk to some people. A lot of people actually were captivated by it. And all of a sudden, they say they want to be pastors. Well, the fact that you have a speaking gift means that you could also be a stand-up comedian. Why do you think you have to be a pastor? (laughs) In other words, what I'm saying is when you're trying to discern what it is that you are good at, I'm not saying that we don't have an individual responsibility, but you need other people to also tell you. This is also another way we discern the call of God. And then finally... You're good at something. You're passionate about it. But is there the opportunity? I met a girl here uh, about two, three weeks ago. And uh, she's about to go and study at McGill University in Canada. And she reminded me of one guy that I met. And he said, this was a few years ago, he's studying uh, mechanical engineering. But the guy wants to be an astronaut. He wants to be an astronaut. And he's not ready to leave the shores of Nigeria. Now, he's an extremely brilliant guy, right? Is you know in his in his all his whatever his engineering, he understands it. But I want to speak to him that guy, I love my country, but I don't think we're sending anybody to space anytime soon. In other words, what are the opportunities that are also there? Now, if you hit all three, I call that the sweet spot of calling. That is if you're able to find something you are really good at, something that you really love, and then there are opportunities. Honestly, I mean you are like a train that actually is just gliding on it. It is it is just you just keep going. Fortunately, we don't always find that. And sometimes we have to make do with a combination of two. Sometimes we are stuck in jobs that we really don't like. But we're actually good at it, and we actually have opportunities there. I, did, I, did, I, was, I worked at a call center for a while. I hated it with all my life. But actually, I was quite good at it. I was always top of my team. And at that time, for me, I know it was God's call for my life. Now, how then do you deal with those things when we don't have all three, What else do we think about, what does uh, the Bible tell us about work again, that enables us to see that we can combine some of these things without necessarily having all of them? The second is service. And I said that is in relation to humanity. Now, if you look in verse 15, it says that God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and take care of it. The Hebrew word there of work and take care is combined numerous times in the Old Testament. But one of the very unique times um, uh, that keeps occurring is what the Levites did in the tabernacle of Moses. The Levites were the tribe that were exclusively giving to the holy things of God. In other words, they served a priestly service to their fellow human beings. In that regard, when we work, we are God's fingers. Think about it. Let me tell you a story about Beodum, right? Beodou is a truck driver. I can't find Beodou's page again. It's gone. It's gone. All right. So I have to imagine the story. Sorry. Hold on. Okay. Beodou is a truck driver. You know? One of these kind of trucks. Just, okay, think about, not, don't think about the one with the exhaust about to come down and he's leaning this way. Just think about, let's say he was in England and Beodou is a truck driver. Now, he sometimes delivers food, other times portable bathrooms. He knows his work makes some kind of construction projects, parades, and concerts possible, but it still feels insignificant. How many of us feel like that sometimes? The work is repetitive. You don't actually see where it's going. Now, someone like Bearden needs to, if he sees his priestly service, he will know that beyond all the things that he said, he's being a driver who transports food is as essential to the food chain as the farmer who grows it or the mother who prepares it. Anytime think of the Biafran war. One of the ways that you know, eventually the uh, Nigerian government was able to stifle the Biafrans was very, very simple. There was a blockade. They didn't allow food to actually enter. People like Beodun, all of a sudden, you see how essential they are for the security of a nation. If we didn't have truck drivers that were bringing things, tomato from Kano. I mean, last year we had the tomato crisis, didn't we? Fine, I know it had something to do with pests, but I hear that 80% of the tomatoes that actually come from the north gets destroyed. If we don't have people that actually bring these things and bring them well, you will starve. And if you starve, guess what will happen? You will die. (laughs) In other words, we need truck drivers. Can we say amen for truck drivers? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Amen. But they should fix their trucks. And that's, in a way, again, our priestly service. It is there we serve. We have the fingers of God. When we sit down at our dinner table, most of us who are Christians, what is the first thing we do before we eat? Bless this food, O Lord. For Christ's sake, in Jesus' name we pray. When we do that, was God in the kitchen to prepare the food? Did God go and buy the food from the store? Before the food came to the store, did God actually deliver the food actually to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the store? Did God actually plant the crops? Did God water these things? And yet, when we pray, we say, thank you, God, for this food that is in front of us. Because we know at a fundamental level, it is still God that provides. But God uses the fingers of different human beings in a whole food supply chain to bring that thing on our table. Our work is a priestly service. As image bearers, we reflect the goodness of God. You know, it's like a mirror, uh, image bearing. You can see it as a mirror, like, and the, the the light comes this way and then reflects this other way. We reflect the blessings and the goodness of God to all of humanity. Now, in that way, I want us to think about God's creation and rule. I want to say a few partic- a few jobs that a uh, uh, few kinds of work that we can think. Now, if we think creation and rule. Two examples of each. Creation, we can think of creative and revelatory work. Now, creative work would be work where God fashions the physical and the human world, and um, revelatory work would be where God enlightens with his truth. So, God's work to enlighten with his truth, revelatory work, and God's work where he fashions the physical and human world, creative work. So, who are the kind of people in creative work? Well, for instance, sculptors. Actors, painters, musicians, poets. Or seamstresses, tailors. You know those tailors that disappoint you? Yes, they're doing God's work. Entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurs create or procreate something out of nothing. Interior designers, builders, fashion designers, architects, novelists, urban planners. All these people reflect God in the creativity that they express. They're creating and bringing things out of But what about the ones who deal with revelatory work? Don't forget that God created all these things with His word. And so when you think of preachers, scientists, educators, journalists, scholars, and writers, they're all involved in God's work. But what about rule? Now, this is the one we really frown at. Because you know, to be an artist, even though they don't pay them that well in Nigeria, there's something sexy about it. You know, this guy, very weird, just, you know, he's all around. Yellow earring, red earring, you know. All, I'm be confused, but my confusion is the thing that actually makes me unique. I can't figure out this world, but I then, re- you know, there's something about artists and sculptors. they be crazy, but they're weird, and we like them. And we like entrepreneurs, you know, Tony Limelu, all these big kind of people. They brought something r- right to Richie's story. Femi Akinwari, you know, all that. <laughs> Look at that smiley face. <laughs> There's something about that. But what about those who rule? Ruling work. We can think of ruling work in providential work and justice work. So, providential work will be God's provision for and sustaining of human beings and the creation. Justice work will be God's maintenance of justice. So, think of providential work God's provision for sustaining humans and creation. Those who bring about order. Well, first of all, think about stay at home moms stay-at-home homes, who actually raise these children so that they will not be trans and steal and kidnap and bring menace to the society. They keep the order of the society. Public policymakers, civil servants, transport workers, yes, Danfo drivers, farmers, repairmen, electricians, plumbers, all those people, IT specialists, bankers and brokers, Public, yeah, civil servants, business school professors, mechanics, engineers, statisticians, welders, janitors—all these people—they are doing God's work. Or those who maintain justice: judges, lawyers, paralegal, government regulators, legal secretaries, city managers. When you have an absence of these kinds of people in society, even though we don't encourage our children to actually work for these things, guess what? All your sexy kind of work—they are looking for—it breaks down. It makes no sense. All of these people, and some of us are like that here, we are doing the work of God. It reminds me of a story. When I was doing my page, there was this lady that used to come. Her name was Zoe. Zoe used to clean um, the tables, clean the around. And I used to notice, I would try and talk with her, but she was always looking down, always looking down, always looking down. And then eventually we started talking, and you could see she would hardly look up on me. And she would, One day she just blurted out and said, you know, you know, you guys are very lucky, you're very smart. Why would someone as smart as you Like to talk to me, you know, this stupid job that I'm doing, I just wish I could get around it, you know. And so one day I I, I sat her down, she came to, to, and I sat her down and said, Do you know how vital your work is here? I said, We do a lot of research here and a lot of experiments and all that. If we don't have a clean place, that is actually going to interfere with a lot of our readings. And if our readings are actually messed up with, some of the conclusions that we come with will be false. And if those conclusions are false and an industry or uh, a company actually takes it and makes and manufactures products for it, there will be chaos. A bomb can actually go off when it's not meant to go off. A nuclear reactor can go off when it's not meant to go off. In other words, if you don't do the cleaning that we can, apart from the fact that we can get germs and die, but if you don't do the cleaning that you are actually doing, we will not be able to actually do the work that we are also doing. It's not a matter of whose is more significant. It is that we are called to play different roles according to the calling that God has placed in us. That leads to the third point, which is dignity. Now, I've already said in an objective sense, the fact that we are created in God's image gives an inherent dignity to work because this is an expression of our image-bearing. But what about a functional kind of dignity? Some people, you can tell them all that, but they don't feel it. We need to see our work in the larger context of what we do to feel the meaning that this work is. Look, Zoe's story shows that if somebody can see their work in the bigger context of what they're doing, they actually have this dignity that is given to them. I'll give you another story, and that's of... um, yeah. now consider Noye, she landed a job with a large corporation right out of university. She spent all day crammed up in a tiny windowless office, crunching numbers to set price points for a line of women's clothing that seemed unattractive to her. She didn't like the clothing, but she was spread, spending all day on Excel sheets. How many of us love Excel sheets? Yeah, the wonky people, huh? you can see them. All right, she was spending all her days in one small office, windowless office, crunching numbers. Her work seemed unpleasant. She hated the products that they were actually bringing, and it seemed also meaningless. One day, she visited one of her company stores and overheard two women talking about the outfits she despised. I could wear this to our party this weekend, one said. I'd buy three of these if I could afford it, the other replied. You can see that is well made. This was an epiphany for Naya. It hit me, she said. These are quality outfits at a fair price. It isn't my job to get women to buy what I would like. Who am I to judge what styles should please them? I realized my work made life a little better for these women if I helped them buy quality clothes they liked. Nonya realized she was loving these neighbors at work. By crunching her numbers, she was taking good quality products and trying to make them affordable for people which brought delight into their homes. When you contrast this, when we, you know, the Bible says that we should, we should give, we should, uh, in, in James uh, chapter 2, that the person who is of, um, of, a, of a lower rank should, should rejoice in the high state that he has. Quite sadly, what we do, I'm not saying, you know, if you have a, a decent level of education, most likely you are not going to work as a cleaner here's what you shouldn't do. Don't despise the person who is actually cleaning. It is our job to lift them up and show them what it is. Don't talk to your children. Don't say, God forbid, or something, that you would ever serve as a gate man. If that gate man is not there, how do you think, for instance, the gate man that is outside here, most of us will actually, who is going to open the gate? Or how secure would we feel? We are there to honor and give dignity every human being for the work that they do. Guess why? Because they are doing God's work. Now, finally, you would say to me that there was a fall and still all is not well. This whole creation or cultural mandate that should go and subdue the world, I mean, I'm not still sure how this can be fulfilled. And when I say there is a fall, I mean in Genesis 3:16, something happened. Man rebelled against God. And uh, through the the temptation of the serpent, as we read in our statement of faith. And God, in verse 17, uniquely cursed the conditions for work. To Adam he said, verse 17, chapter 3, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Curse is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat the fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So, how are we meant to still try to carry out this cultural mandate when sometimes it feels so hard? And even more importantly, this call to priestly service just doesn't work that way. Now, if this world is broken, and I have said that God showed us his creation and his rule to bring order out of chaos, well, this makes sense if I have a belligerent boss, isn't it? Because if people are unruly and rebellious, if I exercise rule on them to bring them back into order, then surely I should be oppressing them. So my boss that actually yells at me, tells me to come in at odd hours, doesn't actually give me what I deserve when it's time for my promotion or the kind of stringent conditions that I'm being given to raise money and do all those things, surely that then, after the fall, reflects God. Because really, the storyline after the fall renders work meaningless. In fact, some of you would say to me, Femi, I won't lie to you, my picture of eternity is one where we'll be on holiday perpetually. It will be Bahamas, Cape Town, um, uh, 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 the, okay, I was about to say the, you know, Thailand, but they had a tsunami, so we can't do that. All right, Inagbe, Inagbe, you know, let's fly the flag of Lagos. All of those crammed together, put on steroids into all eternity. Drinking, you know, sipping coconut uh, juice at the beach and all that. That is eternity for me. No work. You've not read Revelation 21. (laughs) In Revelation 21, verse 24, 26, it says that the kings of the earth will bring their tributes to God. And this is also reflected in Isaiah chapter 60. You can read it from verse 8 to 13. Bring the ships or tarshish are bringing these things, all this, the gold and silver, work. And they're bringing it as tribute to God in eternity. So God says that work retains its eternal and inherent goodness despite the fall, and the proof of this is that we will still be working in eternity. So how does that happen? What happened after the fall? How did God, this issue of creation and rule, what happened? How was it transformed? And how is it that work still retains this goodness up to eternity? Well, I'll tell you how. Because after the fall, God himself still went to work. You see, the first man who God actually gave work to failed because he rebelled against God at his work. Now God came as a man into this world and he says, I'm actually coming to undo the mess. I am coming to work. In John chapter uh, chapter 5 verse 17, Jesus said, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Now we're at the third point, the point of redemption. I too am working. In other words, Jesus did the work of God through the work of God in redemption. We thought of creation, but now we think of the work of God in redemption. And in doing this, when he was casting out demons, what what do you think Jesus was doing? Casting out demons, uh, feeding the 5,000, all of these things. What was Jesus doing? A world that was disintegrating. Jesus was bringing it back to order. He was doing the work that God did in the very beginning where there was chaos. But now he was doing it by demonstrating his power through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, ultimately, that work of redemption took him to the cross. Now, remember after the fall, when God cursed the conditions, he said that it will bring forth thorns. But what did Jesus do? He didn't actually fail at his work, but because he loved us so much, what did he do? He took those thorns and wore it as a crown so that he could then crown us with glory and with honor. In fact, that's why he said, if you are labored and you are heavy, you are heavy labored and restless, because he's our sin bearer, come to him, he will give you rest. Rest is not by just taking two week holiday. Rest is actually by coming to Christ. He became our curse, and he took our thorns so that he could crown us with glory. And now, in this resurrection state, he gives us his spirit so that, again, we can serve as royal priests. 1 Peter 2 says, we are a royal priesthood. Or Revelation 5 says that we serve as kings and priests unto God. The same thing that was there in the beginning, have dominion, Jesus Christ gives it to us serve God, uh, serve humanity and serve his people in the capacity God has given you. We are priests as well. And finally, he gives us that Genesis 1:27-28, that whole cultural mandate. Jesus gives it to us again, even though he modifies it. Now he wants us to reflect redemption. In the beginning God said I've created you man. Now go into this world And go and be fruitful and multiply. Jesus says, all authority is given to me. Go into all the world. Baptizing people and making disciples of them. In other words, this whole procreation that Adam was given, Jesus is now saying, I want you to make spiritual children for me, one. But two, now, as priests and kings of a new order, a new order after the order of Melchizedek, a new order of the creation that is to come, I want you to think with this redemptive renewal and how you then serve God in your places of work. Now the mechanics of this, if you want to see it, come back next week. But it's worth saying, guys, and I repeat it again: in the places of work that we find ourselves, yes, some of us here may be earning 75,000, some of us here may be earning 1.5 million. That's not the point. Some of us are not even paid at all because we work at home that's not the point. The point is that we have been called to serve as God's kingly royal priests in our service to humanity. Is it hard because of the four years? has God done something has God done something about it? You bet that is why Jesus has come to us. Will you come to him? I want us to shut our eyes now if there are any of us here That haven't come to him. And therefore we see this work as a form of tyranny upon us. And you need to know Jesus. You need to trust him. You need to see that the thorns that come in your life is not the end of the story. That is not how you interpret work. Because someone else has borne the curse for you. And now wears the crown. He wore the crown of thorns. So that he could crown you with glory and honor. He would want to meet with you. And for some of us here who have already accepted Him and know Him as our Savior and our Lord, you are thinking, but my work is so incredibly hard. Yes, He knows. His work was even much more harder at the cross. But He did this so that you can find renewal in your work. Father, we commit ourselves to You. We commit the work that we do that You've called us into. We ask, God, that you show us meaning. Give us our work in the larger context of what we do. Help us to reject the prevailing cultural norms that are set before us and help us to see ourselves as royal priests who answer your call in the service of humanity and help us to do it well in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.
1: Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church,
0: visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.